0: Welcome to Cinebronas, I'm Yvette, and normally we're two Latinas from working-class immigrant families navigating law school and legal practice while democratizing knowledge and breaking down barriers set up by elite institutions. Today, we're very lucky to be joined by Cynthia, who's a Fulbright scholar currently working in Morocco. Cynthia, do you want to tell us just a little bit about yourself and how your research project came about?
1: Yeah, so my name is Cynthia Magallanes-Gonzalez, um, and so currently I'm completing a master's in migration diaspora studies at so University of London, um, and I just finished my Fulbright research um, this last September in Morocco. Um, so I, my experience um, studying in Morocco was a little random. I studied my BA in Sociology from Occidental College, and as an undergrad, I studied abroad in Forbaugh, Morocco, and my program was focused on migration. So going into the program, I wasn't quite aware of migration trends in and through Morocco. I had no idea what um, what I was ready or what I was about to experience, I kind of just did the program because I was interested in studying Arabic and French, um, and I had studied migration in the US. Um, but then I started volunteering with a lot of like grassroots NGOs in Morocco and Rabat specifically the capital. And I got really interested um, in the migration of sub-Saharan migrants, so mostly my like, people coming from West and Central Africa. Um, in Morocco, and especially folks who are looking to transit from Morocco into Europe, and I'll go a little bit more into detail um, during our conversation on that, but so that summer of my study abroad program, I was working on a project specifically on sub-Saharan migrant mothers who were in transit in Morocco and looking at how they viewed their relationships with their children who they left back home. Um, and so after graduating this last year, I went back um, as a Fulbright scholar and I researched kind of activism on sub-Saharan migrant rights in Morocco. And I was looking at it specifically from a grassroots point of view. So looking at sub-Saharan migrants who came to Morocco with the intention of moving to Europe, but then like decided to stay um, and become activists, and kind of guide other um, new arriving migrants within the territory. Um, yeah, and that's how I got involved with Morocco,
0: with migration in Morocco. Cool, that's super interesting. And apart from kind of having an interest in the language, do you also have a personal connection to migration?
1: Yeah, I do. So um, I am a first-generation U.S. citizen my family and well, my parents came from um Mexican from Mexico so they migrated from Mexico my mother migrated when she was really really young I think she was like
0: 14 oh wow um and yeah yeah exactly so she spent most
1: of her life in Morocco I mean in the U.S. sorry no Morocco um and so Something very, very personal, and I think kind of the reason why I am committed to working on migration um, and especially the violation of migrant rights is that when I was younger, my mother was undocumented and deported to Mexico. So I kind of experienced all of that uh, mm-hmm. firsthand, and mm-hmm. it, it, it definitely shaped how I viewed um, migration. And of course, growing up, I didn't understand the policies, the laws, and the history of what was going on, mm-hmm. um, in my community and my family and specifically within my household. But I eventually learned all of this once I got to college. Um, so yeah, very, um, migration is, and always has been a part of my life. I also, um, my family's from a small border town in Mexico, so Mexicali, so I, I was, it was always kind of
0: like visible. Yeah. Um,
1: and always a part of my life, my upbringing, etc.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I just recently moved to Tucson, and it's my first time living in a town that's so cl- or a city that's so close to the border. And I think it's a totally different experience in relationship to the border when you see it up close, the enforcement, and how that wreaks havoc on people's lives.
1: Exactly, and what's really interesting is. Um, yeah, like as outsiders, like I would consider myself an outsider for the most part, I was living in Los Angeles and I grew up in Los Angeles. But kind of what was very interesting to me, once especially once I got older, was seeing how this is all kind of normalized to people that grew up in that setting. Um, I don't know if that's kind of your experience as well, having moved to a city closer to the border.
0: Yeah, I think I need to have more conversations with people before I really answer that question. But I think that. It's. I think obviously, if you whatever context you grow up in, things are going to be normalized if you think that that's what the default is. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in the research that you did on migrant mothers who are in transit in Morocco, and you mentioned that you're you were looking specifically at the relationships to their transnational children. And I wanted to ask you, what is your definition of transnational? And then if also you could just explain to us the findings of that research.
1: Yeah, so I think, um, like kind of put in a non-academic way, transnationalism is, like put in a very simple way, I guess, it's just um, creating, like, maintaining relationships, um, across countries, across borders, and um, I I think, like, the word transnationalism or the study of transnational or looking at migration from a transnational lens has been something that a lot of, like, social scientists and um, people or researchers have been interested in lately <laughs> or starting within maybe, like, the 2000s. So even though... I think that transnationalism has always existed, or, or as I think for the most part, always been a way of how people live their lives. It kind of became like a, a, this new phenomenon where, when a bunch of like researchers and social scientists realized that in order to study migration, we can't just look within one um, nation state or one territory, but we also have to look at um, maybe the home countries of these migrants, the host countries, and transit countries, which is what I was looking at, specifically in this research. And so the findings of my study, um, it was very interesting because I didn't go into this research thinking that I was going to look at transnational um, mothering or transnational parenthood. I was kind of just interested in the experiences of sub-Saharan migrant mothers and as I was conducting my interview, I kind of realized that almost all the women that I was interviewing had left their children back home in order to migrate, mm-hmm. um, or, or had either had children um, in Morocco and then decided to send them back home. Um, so a lot of the women who I was looking at specifically, actually some of them were mothers who had children in Morocco and also had children back home. So it was kind of um, interesting, like, the dynamic of why these women decided to decide to leave their children back home, why they, some of them had children in Morocco and then decided to send them back home, et cetera. So I think um, a lot of the times transnational mothers or women who migrate without their children kind of experience a lot of social issues. Um, stigma, maybe among their home communities, uh, among other migrants, um, etc. And a lot of the times it's because there's this kind of misconception that women who migrate um, without their children are kind of abandoning their children in some way. Mm-hmm. And of course this is not
0: true.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that there has been like a lot of scholarship on how women who are my transnational mothers kind of maintain their relationship with their children, and maybe via phone calls, sending right. um, sending letters, and especially nowadays with all the social media um, platforms available,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and also through sending remittances. So then they right. kind of become the the breadwinners of in their family or they would kind of change their role from being just the caregiver to also providing economically for the child. And something that was really interesting um, during my experiences in Morocco was that because these women are kind of stuck in a country of transit as opposed to in their destination um, countries, which for the most part was Europe, Spain, and France specifically. Um, these women are not kind of employed in Morocco. There's a lot of unemployment among, or not, a lot of employment opportunities for sub-Saharan migrants. Um, so they didn't have the resources to provide for their children economically, to send them money, and sometimes, in some cases, even to keep in contact with them. And so, despite, um, maybe, like, the... Economic struggle, their economic struggles, and their um, inability to provide for their children, they still kind of justified their migration and still very much validated their own mothering experience by emphasizing that they will be able to fulfill this um, kind of voice that they had in mothering once they get into Europe, despite have, being stuck in transit. So some of the folks that I interviewed had been in transit for a few months, a year, but then there were women who had been in transit for maybe five to ten years. It just wow. very much depended. Yeah, it very much depended on their socioeconomic status back home and how many times they like attempted to cross and were able to, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to emphasize how bad conditions are in the sending countries of migrants who are so dedicated to getting to their goal destination. I see this a lot with Latin American migrants who are in detention centers in the U.S. who similarly are detained for months, even years, and still remain committed to trying to enter the United States because being detained in a place with horrible food where you get mistreated is a better alternative to their home country
1: yeah exactly and and that's the case um i think that kind of parallels a lot of what um west and central african migrants um i also want to emphasize that i'm using the word migrants loosely i also work with refugees etc but a lot of them rather kind of stay in morocco and try to in some way, find their way across the Mediterranean because of their conditions back home or because um, because, sorry, because they don't have anything to go home to or because their families gave up so much in order to pay for them to migrate right.
0: um,
1: and also because of the shame of kind of going back and not being able to provide anything for the family.
0: You mentioned that these migrants had been planning on entering Europe but decided to stay to advocate for themselves against the oppression that they experienced. I think that's incredibly brave. Can you tell us about the group of people that decided to stay in Morocco after experiencing violence and what exactly these folks were fighting against? Yeah,
1: um, so the people that I'm working with... um, I think it's important to emphasize a lot of the activists that I work with tend to have some sort of activism experience in their home country. A lot of them might come from the Democratic Republic of Congo and had to leave because they were politically active there. So now they're um, refugees in Morocco. So I do think it's important to add that context. And also, a lot of them tend to be... um, Educated, like school, in in school
0: a lot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more
1: than other migrants. Um, and I also think it's important to kind of um, note that, like, the dichotomy between wanting to leave and stay is is kind of fluid. It's not one or the other. Like, there might be something going on in Morocco um, that might push certain migrants who initially wanted to stay to kind of want to leave. So mm-hmm. it's not um, as I think strikes her and so for the most part the folks that I was working with are all people who had been in Morocco maybe for five to ten years so a lot of them came to Morocco before Morocco passed their um, 2013-2014 migration policy which a lot of these folks kind of helped advocate for so prior to this policy there was no migration policy for um, these people or these migrants and also for other foreigners. And so this policy technically granted um, residency to a lot of sub saharan migrants. Of course, there's a lot of um, requirements that have to be met in order to gain residency. But a lot of migrants do kind of see it as a small win for them, despite... Um, some of the promises that were set out not kind of being fulfilled so some of them were like of course like being able to integrate more of a society but there was a lot of kind of follow-up as to how that was going to happen um, or maybe creating jobs for these folks, etc. But what did kind of <clears throat> this, this policy did allow was for sub migrants to be able to live within the Moroccan territory without being um, deported back to the Algerian border. So it's important to mention that the Algerian and Morocco border, they're officially it's officially closed, um, and there's kind of a this no man's land in between. It's like a desert almost. Mm. Um, so prior to this to this policy, if you were um, of course racially black and walking or just outside in Morocco, you can be um profiled and then buzzed down to the border. So there's um, a lot of that's the like the US. that I
0: work with kind of like that, that's exactly the policy in the US and the no man's land that you described sounds a lot like the desert that stands between Mexico and the US. And, yeah. yeah and there's yeah. All the, And so obviously, like within, I think, 100 miles of the border, migrants Mm -hmm. who are caught also within two weeks of their arrival can be um, deported in an expedited way. So they can be deported without ever seeing a judge just because they're near the border um, and are caught recently arriving. And obviously it's all racial profiling.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and that that's exactly what was going on in Morocco. I do want to add that there's, like, um, black Moroccans as well, so that's a little different. Um, but for the most part, if you were um, a foreigner and visibly black, you were just supported, and it didn't matter if you were in Rabat, the capital, if you were um, closer to the border, et cetera. Like, it was just anywhere where you were in Morocco, you were taken to the Algerian outside of Morocco. And so after this policy, what ended up happening was that the profiling didn't become as severe, so there was kind of like a fall in these deportations, and also you're not technically thrown outside of the Moroccan territory, but you're just kind of forcibly relocated into southern regions of Morocco, further away from the north, which is where Um, we have the land and sea borders in Morocco (coughs) with Spain. So, unless you're in maybe northern cities like Nagoa, Tangier, and Getwan, which share um, land and sea borders with Spain, and and also I would want to state that there's two kind of Spanish enclaves on the African continent that share um, land borders with Morocco. So you can either, migrants can either cross into the Land enclaves, or through the Mediterranean into the European territory or European continent. Um, so, unless you're in these northern cities, for the most part, you were able to kind of walk freely in Morocco um, without harassment from the police. This was the case um, until very recently, this last maybe summer, July or August. Um, when there was a a kind of really massive attack on one of the Spanish enclave land borders of 600 and so sub-Saharan migrants. And after this attack, it kind of seemed like Spain and the European Union started pressuring um, Morocco to protect their borders more and promising aid to help them protect those borders. And as a response, Morocco has kind of just gone back a few years and... The policy that was in place um, is being kind of ignored for many reasons. and This means deporting migrants back to their home country, of course, with the agreement of those home countries and also just kind of raiding migrant homes and camps throughout Morocco, but mostly still in the north.
0: The EU's negotiation with Morocco reminds me of the relationship currently between the U.S. and Mexico, where the U.S. Um, provides aid so that Mexico can launch Frontera Sur and uh, attack migrants trying to cross Mexico's southern border. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, um, I actually yeah, exactly. So like, and this is why I was really, really interested in doing this podcast. Is because I see a lot of parallels in um, Morocco being kind of parallel to Mexico as like the transit country. I would like to emphasize that, like, Moroccans also migrate to Spain via the Mediterranean. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, just like this pressure of um, Spain kind of pushing Morocco to act as, like, the, you know, a lot of the migrants like to call it the gendarme de of the European Union. So kind of just stopping migration before it even gets into um its territory and externalizing their borders.
0: Right. I think another parallel that I saw was your description of the how the Moroccan authorities treat migrants. That to me mirrors mm-hmm. how ICE treats migrants, like random early morning raids to instill fear, dropping people off in random locations exactly. to fend for themselves when they're enacting deportations, not allowing folks to apply for asylum. What are your thoughts on that comparison?
1: Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think that you know, like militarization of borders and border control of migration management has been something that the EU has been kind of becoming harsher and harsher on. And also those kind of demands echo into Moroccan territory. Um, So I think recently Spain was proposed to Morocco to kind of create detention centers in Morocco um, to process asylum claims before these folks even get into the European Union. Yeah, I think there's like wanting to still fear um, making migrants or allowing for migrants to gain legal citizenship or residency is something that has become um, really, really rough in Spain. And I think it's also kind of coming down to Morocco as well, where they're becoming a little harsher.
0: Yeah, I think those parallels are really important to talk about. One last thing that I was struck by that I thought was really similar is the criminalization of humanitarian aid. Uh, There's an organization called No More Deaths in Tucson that um, provides water and food um, along the desert routes where people die because of dehydration in the U.S.-Mexico desert, and they're currently being criminalized by the U.S. um, under the guise of aiding and abetting migration and I noticed yeah. in the report that you sent over that there's NGOs that are being criminalized for rescuing migrants at sea attempting to arrive in Europe. So what are have you seen that, and what are your thoughts on that comparison?
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, throughout, and this, this is not something that's isolated to, like, the Western Mediterranean right. or Morocco and Spain, but it's more of what I know about, but I think it's kind of happening throughout the Mediterranean. So usually when migrants cross... It's usually um, through the Mediterranean Sea, and they'll they'll um, kind of go off in their own boats, and then are rescued by a Spanish um, organization called uh, Salvamento Marítimo. And so, in order to be rescued, um, they have to call this organization. And kind of send them their location, and then the organization will then come for them. And so recently, there is because Salvamento mostly speaks um, Spanish, and a lot of the migrants are Francophone, and a lot of them also speak other languages besides French. So they'll contact maybe NGOs in the north to help them translate and send them their location so that those NGOs can contact Salvamento Maritimo. But right now what's going on is that those NGOs in the north are being criminalized um, for um, migration smuggling. And at the same time, the Spanish government wants to privatize um, Salvamento Maritimo, which of course will change the way that it functions um, and may, might affect the way that um or the amount of rescues that it's capable of um, carrying out, et cetera. So this is something that has been happening, I think, for a while now. This is not something that's new, but I think it's becoming more and more relevant, especially in social media, et cetera.
0: Yeah, that's great. So I have one last question for you. You said that you wanted to create mm-hmm. transnational coalitions with your work. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so I think the most important thing, um, I think, for example, whenever I talk to someone about my work, someone in the U.S., and just, like, talking to you now, like, seeing the parallels that are relevant in the U.S. and the European Union and kind of seeing how um, a lot of what one regime is doing will be followed by the other, and I think that's very true sometimes. Um, I'll just hear in the news, like, Something about the U.S. and then later on hear someone like a European politician saying the same thing to control migration. So I do think that you know if and it's it, there has been there have been reports that kind of show that um, U.S. might advise the European Union on how to manage migration or what security cooperation to use, etc. So I think if these countries are kind of working together to better. Um, in their uh, kind of managed migration better. It's very important for activists, academics, journalists, etc., to work together and kind of stop these um, human rights violations that are occurring um, in the border zones or in the country, in these countries. Um, so my goal is to eventually to kind of as much as I can be able to kind of bring awareness to these issues and maybe even Um, try to, you know, put activists in contact with each other um, and see how they can share tactics um, on defeating certain policies, etc. Like I know it it has been done before when it comes to other movements. um, And I think that migration can be done again when it comes to migration.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important to create these connections because that's how people power is created. And, of course, spreading awareness is important because knowledge is power. Exactly, exactly. Okay, great. So uh, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to talk to me. This was a really educational and cool conversation.
1: Thank you, um, and I will. I just want to add that I will kind of send you all a list of resources if anyone else is interested in educating themselves more on the, these issues or um, learning how to get involved,
0: et cetera. Great, and do you want to share your social media or a place where people can find your work?
1: Um, yeah, so I'll send that along with the resources.
0: Okay, sounds good. All, all right. right, thanks Thank so you. much, Cynthia. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.
1: Yo, so my much-